0: is from the book of Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 through 15. We took a look at the first part of this passage last week. We're doing kind of a part two this week. Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 through 15. The passage will be up on the screen. If you have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 through 15. If you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, even just seeing this word forgiveness, I mean, how can that not catalyze heartfelt prayer right now, knowing how much we need your forgiveness, how, knowing how much it how much of a challenge it is to forgive other people, how complicated this passage can be for people that have experienced grievous harm and even abuse. And so we just submit everything in this to you as we do every week. And we say, Holy Spirit, would you come work in power? Would you you kindle a flame of sorts that starts now and just crescendos throughout this time, that we might truly be changed and leave here different people, a different church? We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Talking once again this morning about enjoying prayer, the second part of our two-week focus on prayer in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Last week, I mentioned in passing that our experiences concerning prayer are very diverse, and I want to expand on that just a little bit. Some of us just love prayer. I mean, we could pray all day, People say that we are prayer warriors, we have the gift of prayer, so on and so forth, and praise God for that. Some of us are, I don't know, a little ambivalent, you might say. I mean, we pray a little bit individually. We don't mind it corporately. But we do have these timers in our heads that beep rather loudly when the pastor or whoever exceeds the acceptable threshold for a public Prayer, this very uncomfortable experience that's not unlike waiting for someone to finish using a single occupant restroom at a gas station, right? On one hand, you don't want to rush them, but on the other hand, it's time for them to be done. Some of us, though, I mean, we just dislike prayer entirely, and so we avoid it individually and we're unmoved, if we're being honest, by corporate prayer. This can be because we think prayer is is silly or, you know, emotionally weak. Maybe you're the kind of person that manages to maintain this sort of dour expression on your face uh, through every stanza of amazing grace, you know. But more often, the dislike is actually the produce of one of the following two circumstances. Number one, you've prayed before. But as far as you can tell, your prayers haven't done anything. You didn't get the job. The pain still hasn't gone away. Your loved one still died. So why keep praying, right? And in this case, you might not just dislike prayer. I mean, there might be some real pain and even bitterness associated with it. Because God has let you down. Number two, maybe you dislike prayer because, honestly, you just don't feel like you deserve to approach God at all. I mean, why would God be willing to hear from me, much less be moved by my prayers, given my story, given my sinfulness? Why should I even bother? These two circumstances are going to be front of mind this morning as we make our way into the more personal and horizontal part of the Lord's Prayer in verses 11 through 15. Last week, we focused on verses 5 through 10, talking about how the Father sees us and the Father changes us as we pray. This week, we are going to see, number one, that the Father hears us, and then number two, the Father forgives us. So last week, the Father sees us and changes us. This week, the Father hears us, and the Father forgives us. So let's start with that first reflection, the Father Hears us. Look with me at verse 11, which is one of the most famous petitions in the entire Bible, probably the most famous one. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Christianity is way, way more communal than we tend to think of it here. In our very individualistic West. So the pronouns in verse 11 are arresting. Give us this day our daily bread. True disciples of Jesus always have their eye out for the family of God, not just themselves. If they're petitioning the Father for food or a good job, They are simultaneously considering and praying for others in the household of God who also need food and jobs. And if the Lord blesses us with provisions, disciples of Jesus assume that the Lord has blessed us so that we might be a blessing to other people in the household of God. We've talked a lot recently on Sunday mornings and in our Saturday seminar about generosity, especially generosity to people who are experiencing lack. Sometimes, in response to conversations about sacrificial generosity, you will hear somebody say, Okay, yes, like I hear that, but, but you know, we can still own property. Don't be telling me, you know, that, that Christians have to, to live on a commune together. Sure. But as we mature spiritually, our other-oriented posture becomes so intense that ownership hardly looks like ownership anymore. You know, our, our name might be on the deed, but the door is open, and we are always looking to show hospitality and bless. In fact, we pray for these kinds of opportunities, that the Lord would work through us to provide for other people, to kind of, answer the petition that we're petitioning the Lord for in verse 11. And i got to tell you, it is such a joyful thing, both to pray with other people and to pray for other people. Prayers that are limited to our own concerns, they tend actually to kind of isolate us spiritually, kind of like, I not know, celebrating Christmas alone. Prayers for others. They draw us away from excessive self-focus and they point our hearts in the direction of other people reminding us that we are definitely a part of a spiritual community. But there's, if you'll believe this, an even greater joy found in this petition, and it's this. Jesus' instructions give us permission to depend on God for our provision. Certainly this is more than just permission. Jesus is very much telling us what to do here. But it's not less than permission either. And I'm using that term very intentionally to combat language like, you know, you know I, I just really, I need to pray more. I, I really should be praying more. I'm sure you do. But behold the beauty of getting to pray. Do you see the difference? Behold the beauty of getting to pray and therefore getting to depend upon the Lord for our daily bread. In our day, we talk a lot about empowerment and there is certainly a place for this, especially when we're talking about the dignity of people and voices that have been marginalized. But when empowerment ends up lionizing self dependent you know, the, the I-don't-need-anybody-but-me mentality? Church, we are loading our shoulders with burdens that we are not meant to bear. It sounds exhilarating, but it's ultimately exhausting, and it is surely one of the forces behind this, this tidal wave of anxiety that's washed through our country. And when we syncretize Christianity with you know, empowering self-dependence, we end up doing the Lord's work our way instead of His way, which is quite possibly the number one strategy for quenching the Holy Spirit's power. And oh, by the way, Christians who labor in their own power and experience some measure of success usually end up on, like on the all-star jerk team, which is toxic for them and it's toxic for people around them. The kingdom of God is a kingdom in which flourishing is all about dependence. The kingdom of God is a kingdom in which flourishing is all about dependence. I understand that that might sound kind of restrictive on the surface, but when we consider the exhausting alternatives like the pagan worship we talked about last week, or the the self-dependence I just mentioned, depending on God starts to look, I don't know, refreshing. It might feel upside down, but it's also beautiful, and that is the nature of God's kingdom. It's upside down, and it's beautiful all at the same time. Here are three reasons why this dependency framework is such a blessing for the children of God in the context of prayer. Three reasons. Number one, this dependency framework means that we can be confident that the Father wants to hear from us, that he wants to hear our petitions for daily bread, a very broad spectrum of requests that entails food and shelter and and jobs and safety and so forth. I'm reminded here of the famous petition in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, Give me neither poverty nor riches. That's what Jesus has in view here. And not only are we not bothering the Father, He solicits our requests because He's a good Father who loves to be depended upon and give good gifts. You see how this is such good news for the people of God. Number two, this dependency framework means that when we are anxious, we can rest in God through dependent prayer instead of fretfully taking things into our own hands. We don't have to fight through the the thicket alone. We're invited instead to unload all of our burdens At the Father's feet. Number three. This is tricky, but it's so important. So stay with me here. This dependency framework that we're unpacking, it actually means that we can joyfully persevere as Jesus' disciples, even when our prayerful petitions for daily bread appear to go unheeded. Seriously, you might say. Seriously. If verse 11 is mainly about praying and receiving, God basically functioning as a a genie that we can rub with our prayers, you are not going to have a category for disappointment when it comes. And it will come. Sometimes you will pray, and your financial resources will nonetheless remain scarce, and you will continue struggling to find a job, and your loved one will not recover from their devastating illness. And then, when that happens, when you experience that kind of disappointment, you will either be inclined to believe that God failed you, so he's not that great after all, or you'll be inclined to believe that you failed God. That he's not hearing your prayers because, you know, you're not measuring up. You're not faithful enough. But church, if we are praying to depend, we're actually blessed more by prayer itself than the specific outcomes of our prayers. Do you see this? We're just thankful that the Father wants to hear from us at all. And then we trust them with the results. And so we can persevere in our prayers with joy because praying is itself a delightful opportunity to depend on God and be with him, not a means to an end. You see the shift. And remember, too, that Jesus is is honest with his disciples in the Beatitudes, this this 12-verse intro to the Sermon on the Mount, In Matthew chapter 5, he is honest with his disciples about the difficult circumstances they will continue to face. And the conclusion from Jesus is that as they follow him and continue to depend on him, they are nonetheless children of God and theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Yes, difficult circumstances, but even still, they remain children of God and theirs is a kingdom of heaven. So even as we petition the Father for our daily bread, we already know from the Sermon on the Mount that life will be very difficult at times for Jesus' followers. Sometimes because we are Jesus' followers, which might well interfere with our daily bread. But even in the midst of the interference, we get to continue depending on God, and we know that the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. There is a real sense, City Church, in which we can define prayer as depending on God until Christ comes to consummate the kingdom of heaven that we're inheriting. Do you see how this dependency framework just completely revolutionizes our prayer lives? Including the prayer lives of those who are completely disenchanted by the idea of prayer, because prayer, in their estimation, just hasn't worked. But at the same time, let's make sure that we don't end up in the opposite ditch. Yes, prayer is depending, but it's also very real and very powerful, certainly not a mirage. Recall James chapter 4, verse 2, which we quoted last week as well. You, You do not have because you do not ask which shows us, again, that there's mysterious space within God's sovereignty for our prayers to really do something. We're not, we're not play-acting. It's not a game. There's just no perfect illustration for this. You always run into some sort of, of heresy. But it kind of reminds me of a recent experience driving a go-kart with my daughter. She was really steering it, but I was also steering it, if you know what I mean. Sometimes we went where she wanted to go, at the speed she wanted to go, and sometimes we didn't. Just this past week, I was listening to a panel discussion called, Learn to Suffer, from the Chinese Church. And believe it or not, one of the primary pillars for enduring suffering, according to the Chinese pastors and the moderator that we're serving together on this panel, one of the primary pillars for enduring suffering is believing that prayer is real and powerful. Isn't that wild? Apparently, you can suffer indescribable loss, so severe that it often compromises your daily bread. Apparently, you can suffer that kind of loss and still believe in and experience the realness, and the power of prayer. It feels like a paradox, but it's a mysterious partnership in the background of faithful Christian living and its attention bolstered by the dependency framework we were just talking about. Earlier, though, I mentioned two objections to prayer. The second one having to do with feeling unqualified to approach the Lord in prayer at all. Which brings us to our second reflection. The first objection is basically, I don't even think this works. And the second objection would be, can I even approach this God you're telling me to pray to? So here's our second reflection. The Father forgives us. That's the good news to people who feel like they can't approach. The Father forgives us. Look with me again at verse 11, this time continuing Through verse 15. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. And then Jesus explains. For if you forgive others their trespasses. Your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses. Neither will your father Forgive your trespasses. Sin indebts us to God in the sense that we have committed an offense against Him, a wrong that needs to be righted for the sake of justice. Righted not meaning that something morally wrong can magically become morally right, but righted meaning compensation in proportion to the harm That's been done. You might recall talking about this three Sundays ago in the context of loving our enemies. And the nature of this sin we're talking about here is severe on at least two fronts. It's severe by nature because it's a posture in which we effectively put ourselves, if you can believe this in the God seat, pridefully doing things our own way according to our own wisdom rather than doing things God's way, according to His wisdom. And it's severe by object, we might say, seeing as how we, created beings, are sinning directly against our Creator, the Holy God of the universe. Even if you're hearing about these circumstances for the very first time, you can already tell that the compensation necessary to address this kind of harm is as high as it gets. Which is why Jesus' instructions in verse 12 are just shocking. They are totally stunning. Despite the costliness of the debts we owe to God, Jesus invites us to petition the Father for forgiveness because the Father wants to forgive us. This is, this is the headline. The Father wants to forgive his people in delights in doing so. And he wants to forgive us not so much because we're just so lovable and he can't help it, but because the Father is is so merciful and, and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He wants to forgive us, and it's mainly about him, not us. And that's important. And notice that there's there's not a nuance here like, you know, you can petition the Father for forgiveness unless you're just really sinful. You know, you don't have Jesus kind of pointing his finger at a couple of guys and saying, you guys don't worry about it. The ten of you, yes. The two of you, it's just been too much. Instead, it's forgive us our debts. An invitation for for all of Jesus' disciples to experience the Father's forgiveness. And simultaneously, there's this communal flavor in the petition that humbles us and, and hopefully prevents us from making self-righteous declarations like, thank you, God, I'm not like the extortioners or the unjust or the, un- the adulterers or the tax collectors or, or other such sinners. See Jesus' words in Luke chapter 18. Hopefully, it prevents us from saying things like that. We're not... Sin leveling here, you know, to borrow the language of our times, some sins are certainly more concerning and damaging and evil than others. But goodness, we are saying that we all need forgiveness because we all have debts. Chipper, why do Jesus' disciples need to keep repenting and asking for forgiveness? You know, aren't they already a part of God's kingdom family? Yes but they continue to wrestle with sin. Repentance isn't just for becoming part of God's family or, or just for salvation. It's actually an ongoing gift, albeit a very uncomfortable one, that deals with the relational fraughtness that our sin causes between us and the Father, even though He remains our Father. Sin completely sucks the joy out of the relationship that we have with God. Repentance and forgiveness restores it. Children experience this when they disobey their earthly parents. Listen, the the parents aren't going to abandon their children, at least not faithful parents. You know, well, you left the front door one too many times now, you know, so... Sorry, but you got to leave. That's not what they're going to do most of the time. But the disobedience creates relational dissonance until there's repentance and forgiveness. And mind you, the parents would also love to help their children avoid that disobedience in the future. You know who sets disobedience traps? the IRS listen i saw somebody on twitter this past week they were explaining how they teach taxes to their son, uh, to their kids and he said i just give them a bag of m&ms right and then i tell them that they have to give me some as a tax and i know how much they're supposed to give me but they kind of have to guess at it and if they're wrong they go to prison And that's why I'm grateful for the tax professionals that we have in our congregation and so we don't go to jail. So the IRS, they set disobedience traps. But what do good parents do? Good parents love to help their children stay far away from temptation and far away from disobedience. Thus, this final petition that you can see here in verse 13, and lead us not to temptation." but deliver us from evil. We just talked about expecting difficult circumstances and God uses these to test and to mature us spiritually, often by, by weaning us from the world that we might depend more on Him. But here's what God doesn't do. He doesn't tempt His children. He doesn't set traps. See, for example, James chapter 1, verse 13. Instead, He delights. And protecting us in situations or from situations that might tempt us. And he delights in delivering us from the clutches of the evil one. The better translation in verse 13 than simply evil. He delights in delivering us from the clutches of the evil one who does make a living out of tempting and trapping. Church, if you are concerned about approaching the Father in prayer because of your sinfulness. Maybe you feel like a bad Christian or even the prodigal son that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 15. If you feel like that, I want you to know this morning that the Lord's Prayer is for you. In fact, it is especially for you. It's not for proud hypocrites who think they've nailed it spiritually. It's for struggling sinners who are despairing because they've they've blown it once again. If that's you, forgive us our debts. It's for you again and again and again. You cannot exhaust the grace of God in Christ. And actually, and this is really important, one of the ways the Father helps protect us from temptation And the future is by forgiving us in the present. Satan, you know what Satan does? He takes our sin and he tries to parlay it into a full spiritual meltdown. He loves convincing us that we're lost causes. That we're outside of the Father's grasp. So just give in. Who cares? The Father forgives us again and again and again in the present in part to remind us that on account of his grace, we're not lost causes. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Colossians 2.14. A cancellation that encompasses all of our debts, all of them, not just half of them, not just the small one. So we repent, church, regularly in part to be reminded of his grace which ends up fueling our faithfulness and it protects us from giving into temptation. Isn't that remarkable how something that God does in the present actually protects us in the future? And it also fuels one more more thing. When we experience this kind of forgiveness in the present, it fuels this posture of grace and forgiveness toward those who have wronged us. Verse 12, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verses 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We're not talking about perfect forgiveness here. Otherwise, who could be saved? We're talking about a posture of forgiveness that's motivated by the experiences of forgiveness we have in Christ. As we experience the Father's forgiveness, We are participating in this this ecosystem of grace that washes into our relationships with others. And it expresses itself in the way that we forgive those who owe us debts on account of various offenses. We cannot say this too many times. I'm saying it every week right now. I'm going to keep doing it. As we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount, remember that the guy giving the sermon was on his way to the cross. And if we zoom out a bit on that Colossians chapter 2 passage I just read to you a moment ago, it helps us understand why we're backing up a little bit. Now, here's, here's more detail. In you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Knowing this, that the guy giving the sermon was on his way to the cross to do this, knowing this, and especially believing this in our hearts. Jesus is basically asking us, how can we hang on to grudges? How can we possibly pursue vendettas if this is the narrative? The wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6. But in Christ we have forgiveness. So how do we vindictively gossip about people when we feel slighted? The answer is that we just don't make vindictiveness a lifestyle if our ultimate lifestyle is Christ crucified. Through forgiveness, we release grudges, and we release the debts the others owe us. Because Jesus paid our debts, nailing them to the cross. That's the calculus. And i got to say, there is so much freedom in forgiveness. Vendettas and grudges are totally miserable. They're basically like termites that over time completely compromise your spiritual house. It just rot silently. And then one day you wake up and the whole thing is falling apart. There's so much freedom and forgiveness. As we finish our time this morning, though, we need to address something that really breaks my heart and gets me fairly upset. Some Christians, including some spiritual leaders, have severely misused and even abused passages about forgiveness. In particular, they've used them to manipulate and cause additional harm to people that they've hurt and abused, etc. Something like this. I know I've really hurt you, but you know if you don't forgive me, your soul is in danger. I've seen corporate versions of this as well in spiritual communities where the abuser is shown grace. You know, like, sure, that was sinful, but there's power in the cross. And then the victim gets the law thrown at him. You know, what was done to you is really ungodly, but at the end of the day, you know, we're all sinners and we do need to forgive. Here's the thing in these kinds of situations, the person whose soul is in danger is the person doing the abusing and the manipulating. And by the way, even if there's eventually genuine repentance on the part of the one doing the abusing, consequences are still in order, folks. Forgiveness and consequences are not on rival teams. Conversely, Jesus understands the plight of those who are struggling to forgive people, who have harmed them in very grievous ways. As we said just a few minutes ago, first, Jesus doesn't set traps. He doesn't set traps for his people. You know, oh, you were abused and now you're not sure how you can forgive or what that even looks like. You know, bad news, you're out of the kingdom. No. (laughs) Jesus is for you. Especially you. And he is walking with you as you navigate the hurt. In the fog, in the doubt. He loves you. And oh, by the way, as we mentioned earlier, it's not like he's looking for perfect forgiveness anyway. Because even our most sincere expressions of forgiveness are still affected to some degree by ulterior motives and so forth. Jesus is with you as you struggle. He is with you as you heal. It's our intention as a church family to be with you as well even if the being with you is imperfect at times. Amen.